So it's really about enhancing international cooperation in order to fight impunity and in order not to allow authors of such crimes go unpunished. That's really the, what it all comes down to. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. So I understand you want to talk about a new international convention today. Yes, it's the new and shiny, hot-off-the-presses MLA convention. That's Mutual Legal Assistance, for those who don't know the lingo. And more formally, it's going to be known as the Ljubljana, the Hague, Convention on International Cooperation in the Investigation and Prosecution of the Crime of Genocide, Crimes Against Humanity, War Crimes and Other International Crimes, which trips off the tongue quite neatly, doesn't it? Uh, we'll get into the details of what it is and what it's for, but let's introduce our guests first. We have Raquel Savidra, the international legal advisor at the Asian part of the International Commission of Jurists. Hi, Raquel. Hello, Stephanie, and hello, Janet. Thanks so much for having me today. And we also have Vyas Koutroulis, professor of public international law at the Université Libre de Bruxelles. Hi, Vyas. Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for having me as well. Now, you were both in the thick of the negotiations in May in Ljubljana. Before we get into the details of the meeting, can you explain what role you played in those meetings? Maybe I should, I should kick off. I was part of the Belgian delegation in uh, the negotiations in Ljubljana. Um, but then uh, at the beginning of uh, the international conference, I was elected by the conference as the coordinator of the first working group. In the negotiations, you have the plenary, which discusses all the convention, and then the convention is broken down to parts, and then each part goes to a specific working group in order to do a more in-depth and detailed examination of the issues. So in that conference, we had three working groups. I coordinated the first one. And um, what about you, Raquel? What were you up to? So I attended the negotiations as a representative of the International Commission of Jurists. And mainly we attended to assist delegations in their positions with regard to the treaty. Of course, given our background in terms of international law and trying to protect human rights frameworks and international criminal law frameworks, we wanted to make sure that states were staying true to their obligations under international law in their positions with respect to this particular treaty. Of course, given my background in Asia and how I work mostly in this region to try and advocate for ratification of treaties like this in the Asia region, um, it was also about making sure that concerns that stem from Asian states were also present in the negotiations, given that there was a lack of those delegations present in negotiations. Just before we go into what this treaty is, Raquel, I'm just trying to think back to my times sort of observing how NGOs operate at different international fora. And sometimes they're allowed in the room and sometimes they're not. What was this? Were you there inside or were you lobbying in the corridors? So that's one of the very interesting points about this particular negotiations. And I would definitely applaud um, the organizers of the convention in this regard in the sense that civil society was permitted to, to participate not only in the plenary discussions 
and not only in the, the corridors and informal discussions, but also in the working groups. We could attend, we could make interventions um, at any point on an equal footing with states. Of course, our views are not reflected in the drafting, but we were at least able to participate in the discussions, which um, I find to have been particularly important given the nature of the discussions in Slovenia. And Valius, do you want to give us the elevator pitch for really what this treaty is about and why it's important? Yes, certainly. If I may add one point to uh, the previous question, because I think this is interesting as well. In the handbook for uh, the participants and the rules of the convention, indeed, the, the premise was that everyone assisting, that means supporting states, observer states and other entities like NGOs, uh, would be present both in the plenary and in the working group. There was the possibility of having closed door meetings, but it is important to note that no state asked for such closed door meetings. So it was indeed a very transparent process from that perspective. So the treaty is really about putting states together and enhancing their cooperation in terms of mutual legal assistance and extradition and transfer of sentenced persons uh, with respect to international crimes. And by international crimes, as the, the, the long title read by Janet previously indicates, so we have the war crimes, crimes against humanity, the crime of genocide, and other international crimes, which in this case includes the crime of aggression, torture, and then forced disappearances. But the convention in this respect is an open-ended one, so there is a possibility to add more crimes if the state's parties wish to do so. So it's really about enhancing international cooperation in order to fight impunity and in order not to allow authors of such crimes go unpunished. That's really the, what it all comes down to. It, it sounds pretty obvious now that you describe it like that. So why was there this gap in international law, Raquel? It's interesting that in the case of the UN bodies, we have established that genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and other crimes of international character are of Juice Kogan's nature, which means that states have obligations to prevent their commission and do something about it. However, in practical terms, when we talk about the lack of cooperation and in investigations for these particular crimes, the lack of sharing of information, the lack of extradition, and, and those sorts of matters, that really prevents the perpetrators of these crimes from facing any kind of justice. So this particular convention fills a certain gap that exists, despite the fact that there is a widespread recognition that these crimes are of the most serious nature under international law. Could you give me an example of what that would mean? I mean, it's somebody can kind of skip across borders. Is that what it means? Yeah, so under the previous legal framework, prior to the drafting of this particular convention, if a state didn't have a bilateral agreement or wasn't a member of a mutual legal assistance treaty that already exists in some regions, then yes, there wasn't necessarily an obligation with respect to all crimes covered by this particular convention to investigate, arrest, and prosecute individuals that are perpetrators or suspected perpetrators of these various crimes. So we have something like that already within the European Union, and we have Eurojust doing that. Why, why have a separate treaty? Yes, so indeed there are some, some regional systems which 
already have existing treaties in order to deal with, with such situations. These crimes are international crimes, not only because they're recognized by international law, they're also international crimes because they have an international dimension, an international factual dimension, let's say, in terms of authors being found in different states than the one where the crime was committed, victims being found in different states than the one the crime was committed, evidence is dispersed or may be dispersed in different states. So if you want to have a case and have a successful case before any national tribunal, in most cases, you will be called upon in order to interview witnesses, uh, collect evidence, uh, do investigations and, and all relevant things, or request for extradition of the author. You will be called upon to cooperate in criminal matters with other states. Now, if you're lucky and everything has happened within states that already belong to a regional similar instrument, then you don't really have any problem. But the thing is that, and this is why this convention was important, is that it creates the legal basis for cooperation internationally. So throughout regions, throughout continents, and again, this is really what fighting against impunity is all about. If you have a, an expansive view, let's say, of, of what customary international law entails, then you can say there is no gap because everything is covered by customary international law. The thing is that even if you do believe that, most judges or most prosecutors feel more secure if they have a solid article they can invoke rather than what they consider to be a more abstract rule of customary international law. And this is where this convention comes in, in the sense that it gives a tool to prosecutors, judges, and all involved parties that is operational and can be operationalized very, very quickly. And if I can also add, just in terms of a very tangible example, so ASEAN, the ASEAN states have a mutual legal assistance treaty, which in theory could potentially cover something like this. But in that mutual legal assistance treaty, you don't have definitions of crimes, for example, and you don't have provisions relating to extradition, which essentially eliminates the ability to use the convention to actually cooperate. For example, um, victims or witnesses can't file a claim if there's no domestic crime of war crimes or crimes against humanity. And in ASEAN in particular, and, and actually more broadly in, in the region in Asia as a continent, you don't find widespread criminalization of war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. You're lucky if you have the grave breaches from the Geneva Conventions existing in domestic law, which means that victims can't even file a claim. So it doesn't even trigger the ASEAN MLAT treaty um, in, that, in that case. So because the MLAT treaty that we're talking about today does have that definitional hook, it really advances the practical ability of victims to file a claim and then puts in place the, the framework for state authorities to pursue all the measures needed to advance that claim. So when you're explaining this to me, I'm immediately jumping to all these universal jurisdiction cases in Europe. And of course, there's a lot of countries here that have these universal jurisdictions built into their system, but a lot of countries don't. In a country that has universal jurisdiction with this treaty in hand, provided that everybody signs it, then really get cooperations for these universal jurisdiction cases that people couldn't bring in their own country. 
So yes, this particular treaty, it doesn't establish universal jurisdiction on its own, but it does certainly create a framework that advances the ability to file claims of an extraterritorial nature. So for example, if Vietnam signs the particular treaty and the Netherlands already has you know, a, a robust framework in terms of universal jurisdiction, so you can file a claim in the Netherlands for this, but to get cooperation from Vietnam, you need this particular treaty. So in that sense, it advances the cause of universal jurisdiction in a very practical way. I completely agree with, with what uh, Raquel has said. Maybe a telling example, a real telling example, is the Isenabre case, which ended up before the International Court of Justice. So there you had the former president of Chad, um, who allegedly committed a number of international crimes, including torture during the 80s. When he lost power, he found refuge in Senegal, where he was residing since the beginning of the 90s. And there were attempts to start prosecutions against the Senegal in Senegal. But because Senegal had not changed its national legislation and had not given to its national courts the jurisdiction to judge Isenabre for such crimes of torture, even if it had the obligation to do so because it was a party to the torture convention, these attempts to go to trial were unsuccessful. The victims then, or at least some of the victims, came to Belgium and used Belgium's national legislation in order to launch proceedings against Isenabre there. And then when Belgium asked for extradition, the reply from Senegal was that, well, we cannot extradite because the crime for which you want to judge Senabre is not part of our national criminal law. So we are blocked both at the internal level of, of Senegalese national jurisdictions and with respect to extradition at the, let's say, external level with respect to uh, proceedings in Belgium. And the case ended up before the ICJ, and then the ICJ said that indeed Senegal had violated its obligations under, under the convention. So this is where the technical part of the convention, so the concrete provisions on extradition and mutual legal assistance, have to be coupled with public international or part of the convention, where you would have the definitions of the crimes, the obligation to introduce these crimes in your own national legislation, the obligation to, to change your national procedural, criminal procedure in order to give to your courts the jurisdiction to judge the persons responsible. And this is how, once you have done all that and you have all these obligations and you have fulfilled them correctly, you can start uh, proceedings against the suspect. So the added value of this convention, again, is that it stipulates clearly these obligations. For a number of states, these obligations already exist both based on conventional law, for grave breaches, for example, the Geneva Conventions tell you to, that you need to change your national legislation and introduce the grave breaches. For war crimes in non-international armed conflicts, you don't have an article in the Geneva Conventions telling you to do the same thing. If you think that customary international law provides for such an obligation, then you may change your national legislation based on customary international law. But here, you at least have uh, a convention that levels the playing field for everyone. So everyone that has ratified the convention has exactly the same obligations. And part of the obligations that you find in the convention are driven from other existing 
conventions. Part of them are driven from customary international law, but at least it will be clear for all states' parties to this convention that this is what they have to do in order to enhance criminal cooperation. It reminds me of the whole way that proponents of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court describe its effect. Sort of once a state signs up, then they have to do X, Y, and Z to their own legislation. Is it trying to have exactly the same kind of effect as the Rome, what's called the Rome Statute system, that all states take on board this obligation? Yes, uh, you're making a perfectly good point. The problem with the Rome Statute is that it has the definitions, but it does not have an article, a specific article, obliging states to introduce these definitions into their own national legislation, or obliging states to give to the tribunals a jurisdiction to judge the person responsible for these crimes. It's based on complementarity, right? That's the general principle of the Rome Statute and of the International Criminal Court, because the idea is that states judge first, and then if and when they do not, the court may come as a fallback option. That's the whole idea of complementarity. So if you want complementarity to function properly, then normally, once you ratify the Rome Statute, well, you have to operationalize it in your own national legislation and therefore introduce the crimes and give to your tribunal's jurisdiction to, do, to judge. But not all states have done that. So this convention really complements that aspect of the Rome Statute for which there was no conventional obligation to introduce the crimes and to give jurisdiction. But, and this is a very important point that came up quite often during the negotiations, it is not only for Rome Statute states' parties. It was not intended to be. And this is why the definitions were copy-pasted. Because there was initially the idea of making a renvoi towards the Rome Statute and not copy-pasting the definitions. States decided to copy-paste the definitions precisely because they wanted to allow other states that for one reason or the other do not wish to be a party to their own statute to have a complete convention which would have its own definition. If I can just also circle back to the original question about universal jurisdiction, and I think BIOS opened this door in terms of the importance of the jurisdictional provisions that are in the MLAT which we don't necessarily have the same obligations under the Rome Statute. But similarly, we don't have those obligations with respect to the crimes under other treaty laws. So, for example, the Genocide Convention also doesn't provide that obligation. So, again, the jurisdictional provisions, while they do not explicitly list this concept of universal jurisdiction, they do make sure that state parties exercise their jurisdiction over both the crimes themselves, but also the perpetrators, which goes a step further than treaty, much of the treaty law we have, but as well as the Rome Statute in that regard. Well, this sounds like all of the agreement we all want to have to have all these cases. But now, of course, the most important question is, when does it come into force and who is going to actually sign up for it? Raquel, you must be lobbying hard on, on this uh, across the ASEAN countries in your bailiwick. So who's signing up? So this is the question and this is the work to be done between now and 2024 when the conventions opens up for signature. So indeed, we had quite broad participation amongst the regions for the negotiations in Slovenia, but there was a lack of um, certain delegations, which of course were trying to approach 
those countries as well to make sure not only are they informed of the existence of the treaty, the importance of the treaty, but also become supporters of the treaty. So from Asian states themselves, it's hard for me to name names with specifically who's going to sign up, but certainly we're, <laughs> we're working toward as broad a ratification as we can possibly get in Asia, but also beyond in, in all the different regions. In, in terms of process, again, at the origin of this initiative, you have uh, a declaration in favor of the convention. And the 80 states were the states that before the conference had signed this declaration, so had marked through that signature their support for the convention. Now, unfortunately, not all those states were present in the conference in Ljubljana, but at least with respect to these states, there is some kind of evidence, if you want, that they support the initiative and therefore that they support, that they will support the convention. It is also important, I think, to note that there were six states that were like what we call the core groups so of the states that were the driving force of the initiative. Three of them were European, to Slovenia, uh, the Netherlands and Belgium. And then Argentina joined in and then Senegal and then Mongolia. So we did have in already in the core group a broad uh, representation of states. Among the supporting states, we did also have uh, supporting states from regions, I mean, across the world. For example, Vietnam that was mentioned, if I'm not mistaken, is in the list of the supporting states. Unfortunately, it was not present in the negotiations, if my memory serves me right, but they, they were among the supporting states. So I'm hoping that at least those states that did support the convention will be willing to quickly sign it and, and, and ratify it. In terms of entry into force, the threshold for the entry into force of the convention is very low. The standard threshold for international conventions is usually 30 states. You need 30 states before the convention can enter into force and can start producing legal effects in terms of rights and obligations. For this convention, because of the object and purpose of the treaty, the fight against impunity, and because of the nature of the treaty, the threshold for the end for the general entry into force of the convention was put to three states. You know, if you want to request an extradition or to request mutual legal assistance between two states, you should be able to do it right away. There is no reason for you to have to wait until 30 states ratify the convention before you can use the convention. If you have, you know, if you want to fight impunity efficiently, then you do not necessarily need a very, very high uh, threshold in that respect. So I expect the convention to enter into force very quickly. The real challenge will be how many states will ratify it in the end, because we don't want it to end up with only like 15 ratifications or something. The object is really to go much beyond that. But so I understand that it will be open for signing from 2024. And then I guess, well, three states are fairly quickly found, especially if you look at the core group. And so then the question is how many people will add on? Yeah, I was just doing my uh, my maths on my, my fingers because, I mean, you've got two states already mentioned in the convention itself. So I can't imagine, Steph, that the Dutch won't sign on to it very quickly along with Belgium and Slovenia, that's Ljubljana, and then the other three beyond uh, Europe. 
But then the question will be, you know, how many war criminals and genocidaire are hiding out in Mongolia that the Netherlands want, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, it's going to have to be a bit more widespread. Maybe that leads us on to the question that I wanted to put to Raquel about what happened behind the scenes, because I was kind of alerted to issues that were going on in the negotiations when you started to make some noise and some of the other NGOs made some noise to suggest that there was a possibility that this convention would be not as you wanted it to be, would be a bit more half-assed and not completely fully operational. So maybe you could just describe for us what was going on behind the scenes and, and how you managed to make sure that it turned into the convention that you wanted. Right. So as we sort, Bios and I have sort of noted throughout this conversation that there was a goal of this particular treaty to fill certain gaps and needed to fill those gaps were not only definitional clauses, practical clauses such as the MLA provisions, but also the jurisdictional clauses. So um, despite the fact that there had been state consultations over the course of the last 10 years, there were delegations that came to the negotiations with updated positions with respect to jurisdiction or new positions with respect to the jurisdictional provisions that that existed in the draft treaty that threw a bit of a wrench in terms of our own thinking about this treaty, making sure that it aligns with existing international law standards and doesn't uh, represent a backstep in relation to international law standards. So um, as you probably have seen, the International Commission of Juris noted in particular a dangerous proposal that we believe was made or we believe it was a dangerous proposal made by the UK and French um, to make the jurisdictional provision in relation to the obligation to extradite and prosecute optional. So it wouldn't be an obligation to extradite and prosecute if this was made optional, which itself would not only represent a backstep in relation to existing treaty obligations, for example, under the Geneva Conventions, as well as the Convention Against Torture. But also, we believe it would set a dangerous precedent in relation to the Crimes Against Humanity treaty process, but also in relation to future treaties that would be concluded. So um, we advocated hard for withdrawal of this particular provisional proposal by the British and the French. And the negotiations fortunately led to um, not the original proposal, but did indeed end up in a, in a compromised position. And in very practical terms, because you say that this proposal uh, would make, I guess, a request by one state to the other state to arrest a perpetrator on their grounds optional. It is now obligatory or more obligatory than it was if you look at the practical outcome. Because in the treaty as it is now, if I in the Netherlands want to have a universal jurisdiction case against a former African dictator who is sitting out his retirement in Senegal, does Senegal have that obligation now under the treaty if they were both to sign? Yes, exactly. So Senegal, if the they, uh, suspected perpetrator is on the territory of Senegal, and Senegal is a state party to this particular convention, there is an obligation that they open an investigation to this individual and either prosecute this individual to the extent there's evidence to do so in line with the convention or extradite them to another state that is willing. However, as a result of the negotiations, there is a, a clause in terms of reservations that can be made by a particular state to 
ensure that foreign nationals ensure in other situations that these provisions are not mandated. But of course, the, the reservation provision that exists in the convention now as a compromise position is not the same as the original proposal and not nearly as um, regressive from an international law point of view. And so for that sense, I can't say that we are supportive of the reservation. Of course, we advocate that states ratify the convention without lodging any sort of um, reservation to the convention. But at the very least, we're, we're pleased that the original proposal did not make it into the convention in its original form. If I may also add, add something on this, this was indeed one of the most difficult issues of the negotiations. The difficulty with it is that there are in other conventions clear provisions that stipulate the obligation for states either to provide their courts with the jurisdiction to judge the person responsible or if they, for one reason or the other, they do not judge the person responsible, they do not, they do not submit rather the case to the relevant authorities for prosecution that they can extradite. So this is indeed something that exists in other international treaties and that was not contested by everyone, of course. The, the issue that we have had here, at least that was my understanding of it, is that because the treaty covers many crimes, there are not equivalent provisions in international treaties for all the crimes that are covered by this convention. So the contentious point was not going back on what other international conventions were saying. It was, it was really a question of whether the convention in this particular respect will give some leeway to states where there is no other international obligation to extradite or to prosecute. And the reservation is formulated in such a way in order to provide exactly this. You cannot make this reservation if you have an existing obligation under another international treaty or under customary international law to prosecute or if you do not prosecute, to extradite. So the reservation may only be made in cases where you do not have such an, a, a parallel obligation. This is something that I think all states agreed upon, in the end at least, the, 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 the willingness not to cut down existing international law and not to go back on existing international obligations. The difference that states had was what exactly and how broad these international obligations are. Not in terms of conventional law, because this is clear enough, but in terms of customary international law, where states' views may vary as to what customary international law says with respect to whether there exists an international obligation to prosecute or if you don't prosecute to extradite, there, there would be a possibility to have a reservation. And this is why I think it's important to note the general willingness not to go back on, on, on existing international law. It's just that at that point, states did not have the same reading about what international customary law says. I think uh, my understanding from taking from both of you is that uh, essentially you made sure it didn't go backwards. 
and that we didn't end up with what was being kind of described as the possibility of developing safe havens, but it didn't necessarily, it didn't make states uncomfortable that by signing up to this, that they'd be signing up to something different from what they'd already decided to sign up for. So they're able to kind of stick within the boundaries that, that they have. I'm wondering, is there any kind of lessons that we can draw from this discussion in terms of how we can see what the discussion around the new potential Crimes Against Humanity Treaty is going on? I can see you nodding, Raquel. What do you think? Yes, I think that this particular process in relation to the MLAT Treaty that was concluded in Slovenia has a lot of lessons learned that we can apply to the Crimes Against Humanity Treaty. I think one of the best practices that was established is something we've talked about in relation to the participation of civil society in the negotiations. Of course, it's limited in the sense that the Crimes Against Humanity Treaty is proceeding within the Sixth Committee of the UN, but eventually the treaty will leave the Sixth Committee. And at that point, um, broader participation would be welcomed then amongst civil society. Additionally, with respect to the expertise that delegations bring to the negotiations, it's important that the delegations consist of expertise on international law, but as well as some of the practical aspects of the treaty, it, it cannot be one or the other. So definitely in, in going into these negotiations, we as ICJ would encourage states to make sure that their delegations consist of the proper expertise in this particular treaty. But additionally, in the sense of making sure that delegations are informed of the practical aspect of all aspects of the treaty, that's also important. Um, surface level engagement, of course, is not ideal. And so we wanna make sure that states, as broad a subsection of states as we can possibly get, engage in the negotiations in as robust of a manner as we could possibly get. So that's something, of course, we'll, we will encourage with the Crimes Against Humanity Treaty that um, we saw on some, on some level in the MLAT, but, but um, would have been nicer to see more of in all regions. In terms of substance also, there were, in many occasions, there was reference during the negotiations to the draft articles that the International Law Commission has uh, agreed upon on Crimes Against Humanity. So these articles were among the texts that the delegations referred to during the negotiations. There was an awareness during the negotiations of the, the link and the, and the potential impact of this treaty on uh, the negotiations of uh, the treaty um, with respect to crimes against humanity. For example, we followed the um, definition that we find in uh, the ILC draft articles on crimes against humanity and states when they discussed the definition of crimes against humanity, they decided to exclude the definition of the notion of gender, uh, which you find in the Rome statute. So normally if we had copy pasted the Rome statute, we could also have copy pasted that specific definition, but states decided to go along with what the ILC had proposed and to delete that specific paragraph defining rather restrictively the notion of gender. And the introduction, the inclusion rather of uh, the obligations on criminalization, uh, the outdated judicare provision and all that, I think can be a useful precedent for the negotiations, well, wherever they, they take place at the, at, at, at the UN on crimes against humanity. 
Thank you for making everything rather clear to us about this new treaty. Uh, we always finish our podcast with the asymmetrical haircuts questions, and there is always the one that says, did we not ask you anything that we should have asked you? Is there anything we forgot? Is there anything you want to say additionally to our conversation to this treaty? In addition to what we, Bios and I, have both mentioned, just in terms of the importance of wide ratification of the MLAT treaty in all regions, this particular framework is only going to be effective if as many states in each of the regions ratifies it. But that's not to say that the Crimes Against Humanity Treaty is not also equally important. They play a complementary role. Um, states should engage in that process as well. I know that there's been some questions in relation to picking one or the other, but actually they address different issues. And so in that sense, states not only should, should be ratifying the MLAT treaty, they also should be participating in the Crimes Against Humanity process. And in relation to ICC Rome Statute states, of course, this MLAT treaty is equally relevant to them. Um, so in that sense, we, we need to make sure that those states also participate and broadly ratify amongst themselves this um, MLAT treaty. Bios? Yes, I would fully second what Raquel has said. One need only to just look at the number of articles in this treaty, in the MLAT treaty, and to compare it with uh, the Crimes Against Humanity uh, ILC uh, articles to see that this treaty is much more detailed in its technical provisions. So it does have a real added value with respect to the Crimes Against Humanity Treaty. And actually the same thing goes for the Rome Statute. So indeed, we are in the process of creating a structure where if you combine the Rome Statute, the Crimes Against Humanity Treaty and the MLA Treaty, you would have a fully operational conventional framework for fighting against impunity. And it is important not to focus on one, it's a triangle, not to focus on one of the three points of the triangle, but to allow the triangle to function properly. Exactly. If I can just add one additional point, and sorry about that. So one of the things in the lead up to the Rome Statute, and we've seen also in, in how the Rome Statute has played out over the years, the reticence of certain states to cede what they believe is domestic jurisdiction over the prosecution of these particular crimes. One of the things that the MLAT Treaty does, but also the Crimes Against Humanity Treaty would do, was make sure that states themselves, um, their courts would be, would be used, and it gives some of the power back to the states to take a lead on prosecuting some of these most serious crimes. So in that sense, it creates a balance between this international system that we have on the International Criminal Court, but also make sure that states themselves are equipped to handle these in their domestic courts, which, of course, I think from a jurisdictional perspective, many states would appreciate. Final question that we always ask our participants uh, kick off with you, Vyas. Is there anything you've been reading recently, listening to or watching that you'd like to share with our audience? It can be about this subject area or it can be something a lot more general. Okay, that's an interesting one. I hadn't thought of that. Maybe if Raquel has something, then maybe Raquel can, can, can start. And I can, because, because for the time being, I'm just reading master's thesis. <laughs> but... No, that makes sense. I mean, there's not a, 
you know, my head is always in this international law issue, but also, of course, international politics and how they influence international negotiations. But if I can just give a certain plug. So Opinio Juris is going to hold a symposium specifically on the MLAT treaty. So, of course, those who are interested in looking at some of the the reflections of those who were at the negotiations um, certainly should keep their eyes open to Opinio Juris and a symposium that will be held um, later in the next couple of months. Okay, great. Uh, I'm, I will be looking forward to that. Uh, no, I am. I, I also am quite caught up in international law. I think it's probably. I don't know if it's a perversion of the uh, of the profession, but it. It is, it is a profession that you cannot simply leave at home, uh, sorry, leave at the office and then go back home and you would have this completely binary view of, of you know, your life at work and then your life outside work. What I enjoy is spending time with my family, actually, and I haven't been doing that a lot these, these past months. And then, like, focusing on the small things, Probably, you know, not not taking taking small parts of the day off and then going for a walk in the woods or, you know, a walk by the sea. Being Greek, I really enjoy the sea a lot. So, yeah, like small, small, simple things like that, I would say. Well, then let's circle back to another asymmetrical haircuts question that we forgot to ask because you're both very into the international law aspect. We also ask people, what is your favorite court case to talk about either uh, in your work as an advocate or maybe in your work as a professor, the one that you really like to teach or that you think is a great example or that inspired you to do what you do? Ha, okay, yes. Again, that's a difficult question because there are many I think what is important generally with international case law is not only to focus on what the court has said in a specific case, but also on the follow-up of that case. So, for example, it's, yes, I don't know, like the ICJ advisory opinion on the legal consequences of the construction of the war. It's a great case in terms of substance because the court has reaffirmed many things about several general public international rules. Um, the advisory opinion in, in, uh, with respect to the Chagos archipelago. There again, the court has reaffirmed quite strongly how the right to self-determination should be interpreted. And it's, it's, it's a fine advisory opinion. But what I try at least to alert my students to is things may very well be said in the judgment or in an advisory opinion, but you always have to check what has come after these, these judgments and these advisory opinions. So have they been executed? Have they been followed through? Have states complied with them? Are they integrated into the practice of states? This is what I find most challenging. Again, if we go to I'm also teaching international criminal law. So if we go to the ICC, for example, case law, you have all the case law relating to immunities of state officials before the ICC. So these are important cases. But aside from what the court says, one also needs to be aware of how does this work out in practice and was it executed? Was it applied in practice? 
And that, of course, is a very different story. I cannot help but notice that you picked all examples of things that the court was very lovely to decide upon and that the states after were not really very quick to execute or execute at all. Yes, yes, but because I think sometimes lawyers lose sight of that and, and students certainly lose sight of that and professors sometimes lose sight of it. You know, we, we kind of tend to focus on the findings of the court and the analysis of the court and we are splitting hairs into four uh, in order to, uh, to identify, oh, there was a coma there and what is the consequence of the coma? And we forget about the follow-up. And I think what is necessary, at least for those who are willing at some point to engage with public international law, if there are students, I'm thinking about students now, is not to be naive with respect to what public international law can do. Being too idealistic about this leads to frustration afterwards. There is a fine red line that should be found, and it's not easy to find it, but there is a fine red line between keeping your faith in public international law while at the same time being conscious of its limits. At least this is what I strive to, to pass on to my students. I guess if I'll build off of that particular um, point in the sense that those of us advocates who also work in domestic courts and on the ground, we often use international courts to give us the hook we need to take this practically in a domestic state to make sure that authorities respect certain obligations. One of the cases I was um, originally thinking of was a, the Velasquez Rodriguez in the Inter-American Court, which established the burden of proof in enforced disappearance cases uh, with the government. So if an individual is, is last seen in the hands of the government, that government has the burden of proof to show that they didn't have the individual. Prior to that particular case, it was on the complainant themselves to prove that a person was disappeared, but because they didn't have information on that, in fact, that's what they're alleging in the court, they don't have information, that's the basis of their case. You know, they couldn't practically get a judgment with respect to enforced disappearances. So in terms of international law, that was a real innovation that came out of the inter-American court that's changed enforced disappearance jurisprudence in, in the world. But practically speaking on the ground, that means that families who have a, a relative that was disappeared can you know, allege that you know, the state disappeared my relative and they can get reparations for that or they can get information as to what happened to their family member for that. So that's the whole purpose of this international legal framework, to make sure that there is, from bottom to top, we have an anchor in, in to protect these particular rights for individuals who are affected by human rights violations. Well, thank you very much for all of those different uh, examples. We'll make sure we get uh, links to them in our show notes so that uh, students, if they want to, can follow them and can consider what difference these court cases make in reality. So thank you both very much for letting us know about the MLAT and exactly what's going to happen. We'll be following, obviously, to see how many people sign up and exactly um, when it all starts to, to kick off in terms of practical reality. Thank you. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net. 
an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.